0: joys of working and being a part of the ministry team here at JIBC is uh, basically pulling a fasten on Pastor Dan. Um, there are a few things in this world that give me more pleasure than to watch him realize he had no idea what was happening around him. Um, we, uh, we knew that he was going to be gone today long before he had any idea and uh, we intentionally misprinted bulletins and the whole nine yards. So if you're looking at your bulletin, I just wanna, who was supposed to speak this morning? Was that Andy? Yeah, I'm not Andy, okay? I'm I'm older and better looking and I know the difference between a Carol and a him. It's It's true. It's true. I asked Brother Andy this morning, or Brother Aaron, I said, did we hire him? Some official disclaimers this morning. This is not a traditional look out while I fall down a uh, traditional Christmas message. Okay. I'm am I'm not a humbug. I'm not a grinch. I'm not Scrooge. I'm I'm not Tiny Tim. I am nor my am Bob Cratchit. But I'm a man that struggles with the Christmas season the way we celebrate it, okay? Because we paint these pictures for people that frankly, scripture doesn't give. We we paint this idea of the Christmas season with this broad brush of beauty and pristineness and sterility and that underlying calm. And frankly, That's not the picture that I see in Scripture when I look at the Christmas season, okay? I don't want to be a bummer. I'm not going to tell your children that Santa Claus isn't real, although he's not, okay? But since none of them are here, I'm safe. But this morning, I'd like for you to join me in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. The book of Galatians, Paul writes, and it's, it's one of those fascinating books, and, and as I grew and as I began to read and understand and study God's Word, I fell in love with the fourth chapter, especially when I realized just how intense Paul's writings are. If you really want to really dive into what Christianity is all about, spend some time in Paul's writings. He'll straighten you out, or he will confuse you. And for the most part, he will paint a clear picture of exactly what God expects from you. Galatians 4, 1 through 7, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons... God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Join me as we pray. Father God, we're grateful for your word, for the writings, for the preservation of it, for the inspiration, for the plenary uh, placement of the words that, that literally convey all the thoughts and all the ideas that you had. We we trust it. We We love it, we take it as part of our very being, our Lord, this morning, allow it to flow from this sinful man, this broken man that you have repaired, and Lord, I'd ask that you would be glorified in what we say and do, in his name, amen. Merry Christmas is tossed around this year by both believers, this time year by believers and non-believers, and uh, frankly, I've even been known to do it myself, I've been known to wish people Merry Christmas. I wished a guy last night a uh, Merry Christmas at the Kroger store. I was telling my ABF that uh, poor guy was stuck in line. He wanted to buy a single jar of paste picante sauce. So this is a desperate man when you go to the Kroger store at that time of the day to buy a jar of picante sauce, okay? And he's not happy because the line is long and it's not moving. So I said, come on, dude, throw it in my cart, and I'll just buy a jar of picante sauce, you know, Merry Christmas. And uh, then he gave me more than I paid for it. So it was a good time. I think he gave me three bucks, and I'm pretty sure it was only like $2.49 or something, but um, I wished him a Merry Christmas. But I want our time together this morning to explore what the coming of Christ was really all about. No, I'm not going to Luke 2. I'm not going to take you through the manger scene. We're not going to visit the dirty stable, visited by a lowly shepherd, a pregnant girl, and any collection of stable wearing animals. There's no round round, John, round yon virgin, no angel singing on high, and certainly no, come all ye faithful, this morning. We've already sang some of those songs. But I want you to, to join with me as we go into the book of Galatians. Paul writes, he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, it does not differ from a slave, although he is owner of everything. In the writing, of, in Paul's day, in the writing, The Galatian church was a lot different. It composed a lot of of converted Jews, of Gentiles that had come to know Christ, and any collection of different people that wandered through the city. Uh, Galatia was a a thriving place. They um, had people in and out all the time. So this church was made up of a broad spectrum of what you would call ethnicities. There were people there that had come from different parts of the world, different mindsets, different religions. And when they come to know Christ, the world around them was beginning to change. In a Jewish household, the young boy was under the absolute control of his father. Dad held and used his absolute God-given authority to teach the child, to control the child, to move the child forward. I don't think any of us can fully relate to what it must have been like to be a slave, which is the picture that Paul's painting here, to have everything you do determined by somebody. It's not like your job, not like your you're married, some of us have said, you know, well, uh, she's the one who must be obeyed. And and that's not the case in this. This, is, this man had absolute authority over his child. And that authority stayed there, so he was much like a slave until he reached a particular age at which that began to change. The young boy was to follow dad as he grew, learning of the Torah, following the law, and become a productive member, and, of society and a faithful man. He had expectations of his son. How many of you here have sons that you have expectations of? When I was younger, when I was younger and my children were younger as well, I had expectations of what I thought they would become. Boy, was I wrong. I missed the mark on every one of them. I would have never dreamed that my kid who couldn't keep his bedroom clean would wind up in the Air Force and be a star model and wind up leading his flight or his division, whatever it was called, because he set the example of discipline and cleanliness. Just (laughs) could have knocked me down with a feather. We went in and saw his dorm there in San Antonio, and I went, so who lives here? We didn't even know your room had a floor in it when you lived at home. I I would have missed the boat. But all of us have expectations from our sons in our culture, We don't stand over them with a rod of iron and force them to become what we want them to become. We allow our children the right to explore and to grow and to become and to figure out what they need to be in life. That wasn't always the case for the Jewish lad. At the age of 12, the young Jewish boy went through a a ceremony called a bar mitzvah. And girls went through the same thing at 12 years and a day. A day after the guys. Why a day? I don't know. Just the way it was. But the boy was moving into uh, an age of legal age, of legal responsibility, and he began to take on some of the responsibilities of adulthood. Now, I see the teens sitting over here, and some of you are somewhere between the age of 12 and probably 18, and you've been given a certain amount of responsibilities and freedoms in your life. You know, in many parts of the world, once you become a certain age, everything you do, you're held accountable for. There is no running home to mom and dad. There is no running home and saying, well, he's just a child. He made a mistake. You're held accountable for exactly everything you do. And frankly, I think we'd be better off if we got back to that. But that's just my opinion. The result of the ceremony, the, he became an adult in, into adulthood, although he still had to live under dad's roof. How many of you remember still living under mom and dad's roof when you were an adult? Okay, dad would say, "Where are you going? Out? How far out?" Well, you know, I don't, when are you gonna be home? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You know, son, you live under my roof. There are rules here still. That's when I moved out. <laughs> he was living under his father's roof, but he was still expected to follow and carve his own path, a path guided by and meant to glorify God. In this same church, there would have been members of a Greek family. The Greek house had a similar event, it happened at a later time in the lad's life, around the time he turned 18. And it's interesting, in this ceremony, the boy's long hair, the long flowing locks, would be cut off and then sacrificed and offered to the Greek god Apollo. I, apparently, I could have never done that because I, my hair's exi- not existing anymore. Yeah. But there was something that they did at that point that notated and moved them forward into adulthood. In the Roman world, at the age of 18, he would offer his toys as a sacrifice to the gods. And girls would do the same thing with their dolls. You say, Paul, why, why are you telling us this? Because it begins to make sense when you look at the rest of the passage. Paul would have been alluding to this in 1 uh, Corinthians 13 when he reminds the Corinthian church to put off the childish things, to put off those things that uh, are for little children. You know, as, as you grew up in life, you were expected to move forward and not necessarily play with the same toys you always had. Although I still love Legos, I still enjoy playing with some of the toys that the kids have, but that can't be my life. Okay? That can't be what God has planned for me to be. That's not where he has put me. I am expected to move forward. I am expected to grow from time to time in Christ and in the knowledge and authority of his word. Each one of us should be daily growing, getting smarter, getting stronger. If you will, we should be maturing even more so in our faith. That's what Paul is saying about put away these things. He goes on to say he is under guardians and managers into the date set by his father, guardians was a guy who cared for the underage boys. Everywhere this kid went, this guy went with him. You couldn't go to the store without this guy being right here beside you. Everything you did with guardians and and house stewards and managers, everywhere you went, this guy was right here with him. And even though he was the eventual heir to all the father had, he was powerless to do anything with it because he hadn't reached that point yet where they had taken him out from underneath the guardians and the managers. Now, I never never had anybody lead me like that. I never had to take anybody with me. I never had, had anybody follow me so close to make sure I was doing all the right things. They were only allowed to do what the manager or the guardian said. They were under their control at all times. This is possibly why the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son, is so pointed in the ears of the Jews as they heard it. Because this insolent kid wanted all that God had given his father, now you give it to me, I want what's mine. Then he goes on in verse 3 and says, Also, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Scholars have debated the meaning of the term elemental things of the world, and I think it's best to say that if these are just pagan religions. Let's be more honest here. Our world's full of pagan religions not going to ask. Please don't hold your hands. I don't I don't want to know. Don't make me know. Okay? I wonder how many of you look at your astrology every day. Don't please don't raise your hands. Okay? I don't I don't even like to read Chinese fortune cookies. Although I do. Okay? <laughs> there are other things in our world that people wrap themselves up in. They wrap themselves up in all of these different thoughts and pagan religions and uh, earth worship, Paul mentions these vain philosophies in the book of Colossians, and, and they get all wrapped up in these things. And he says, look, guys, you know, we need to put these elemental things away. We need to do away because we're in bondage. I remember there was a young man that came to the church many years ago, and, and I wanted him to go up on the hill and play with the kids. I wanted him to go play with the teens. And, and he told me, he said, well, I don't want to. So, okay, you don't have to. You don't have to you don't have to. If you don't want to, I can't make you. He said, well, I'm a nonconformist. No, you're not. What do you mean? I said, because nonconformity doesn't exist. Sure it does. No, no, it doesn't. Because if you're a nonconformist, then you strictly conform to the rules of nonconformity, and therefore, by your very nature, you are a strict conformist. (laughs) He kind of looked at me and said, I will go up on the hill. Okay. So, anything that you wrap yourself up in, any of these weird philosophies, any of these weird ideas, any of this stuff that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, it's like a straitjacket. It will bind you, and it will tempt you, and you think it will lead you, and the only thing it will do is it will lead you to a fiery hell, because that is not what God intended for man to do. Paul is writing us to tell us that even though we were under the law, and at one time, and even though Christ has come, we need to make Christ the center of our lives and put all of these things away. <laughs> there is nothing in this world more valuable, nothing in this world more precious, nothing in this world of greater cost than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing has that much value. It alone is the top of every category. And then verse four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive as adoption of sons. What does that mean? The fullness of times. You know, God doesn't just God just doesn't turn a switch and something happens. He doesn't just all of a sudden say, well, I think I'm going to make butterflies. Or I'm just going to all of a sudden cause floods. Or, I'm going to cause the sun to fall from the sky. God does things in an orderly fashion. I want you to consider for me, if you will, the world that Christ came into. The fullness of times. There's this thing called the Pax Romano. In the Pax Romano, there were things that happened in the Roman Empire that made it it, um, readily, easily for Christ to come into the world. Number one, there was a peace that permeated it. If you read the book of Acts, and then you read the first Thessalonians, you'll find that Paul is challenged and run out of Thessalonica because he was upsetting the peace of the city. In in the Roman culture, they valued peace. It was a peaceful time, and to upset that peace was a huge problem for everybody. Not only was there a peace, but there was a common language, Koine Greek. Most of your New Testament is written in Koine Greek, and none of us read it. I mean, some of you may have studied it, but nobody speaks it anymore. So the language, you could travel all over the Roman Empire, and chances are you could speak to everybody you encountered. I went to Estonia with Lyndon, been lost a couple of times, and it was so funny. The second time we went, I was dropped off, Lyndon dropped us off in the city of Tartu, okay? Ask me how much I know about the city of Tartu, Estonia. Not very much, okay? But I was, it was late at night. Uh, the sun was still up, so it was probably 10 o'clock in the evening. And uh, I was hungry. I really needed a cup of coffee, so I go into a McDonald's, okay? And I walk up to the counter, and then I'm thinking, see, I hope they speak English. You ever been somewhere where they don't speak your language? So I walked up to the counter, and I'm looking at this girl, and I'm like, do you speak English? Yeah? Okay, Cool. I want a cup of coffee. What kind of coffee do you want? Well, what do you got? She said, well, ran through the different sizes. I said, okay. I said, I need, need something sweet. She said, okay. and I said, what's that? She explained it to me. I said, is it good? She goes, I like it. I said, I'll take a piece. It had stripes in it and stuff. It was okay. But she handed me this cup, a ceramic cup on a glass saucer with a metal spoon that all said, my McDonald's. In McDonald's, they had glassware. And so I was stunned. (laughs) I was like, man, I've never seen this before. But that language that she spoke and I spoke allowed that communication to go forward. Much the same with Koine Greek, where you traveled in the Roman Empire, you could communicate and you could share. Not only was there that, but they had these wonderful things called the Roman roads these roads were originally intended to move the soldiers the Roman soldiers quickly from one part of the kingdom to the other they could take their soldiers and be somewhere quickly not have to go over top mountains and stuff they had this nice paved or semi-paved way for them to get from point A to point B kinda like here in the United States and that allowed not only the Roman soldiers to move but guess who else used those roads Missionaries, the Apostle Paul, they all used that same road to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the birth of Christ on those same roads that the Roman soldiers traveled. God had prepared the world for the news of the coming of his Son. There was also this thirst for hearing of new philosophies and ideas, Kind of reminds me what you hear about some of the colleges nowadays. They'll hear the most outlandish stories. You hear these ideas and these philosophies coming out of people's heads, and you go, and you're educated? You have this, these letters behind your name, and I don't, I don't think you could find your way around the block, buddy. Okay? So there was a thirst for learning. And it was into this very world that God took the form of a human child in the name of Jesus. Born of a virgin born under the law, and most of all, born without a sin nature. So you see, God just didn't drop him at a a convenient time. God just didn't pop him in where he thought he would fit nicely in the schedule of things. God put the world in order to ready themselves for the coming of the one who would be the redeemer of mankind. And that's Christmas. Christmas. That's not December 12th. That's not a Christmas tree. That's not stockings hung with care. The real story is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we get our sin natures from our Father, and He didn't have one. So He lived His whole life without sin. He defeated Satan at every turn. At every point in His life, He was challenged. At every moment in His life, He was either ridiculed or He was if you will, beaten and chastised. Helpless and weak, yet still fully God and fully man, the hypostatic union. The unthinkable was made reality, the unimaginable made real, and the cure for sin was made clear. I don't know if you can really, I really can't readily wrap my head around the, the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man. I, I don't know. I, you know, there's just some things God doesn't want you to understand. I gotta be honest with you. There's some things that God's just not going to let you know. Like the voices that John heard you know, on the beach when he went to write them down and God said, seal those up, I don't want anybody to know. Well, then why did you tell us he even said that? Okay? Jesus shows up in the book of, of Revelation and, and riding on the horse, there's a name that no man knows. Why well, I want to know the name? What's that name on his leg? See, there's things God doesn't tell us. Why does God do what he does? Why does God allow people to come and go in your life? I don't know. Because God does things because God does things. And when God does something in your life, it's for a reason. Might not be what you thought, but it's what He knows is best for you. So I don't fully understand the hypostatic union. I, I can't picture I can't picture being Mary and Joseph and having this child and knowing where He came from and who He is, and having to tell him, no, don't put your hand in the fire, or you have to eat your vegetables. You know, they probably didn't have broccoli back then, okay? Or even worse, Brussels sprouts. Great practical joke if you ever want, want some. Drop uh, Brussels sprouts in chocolate and put them out like chocolate-covered cherries. cherries. People will love them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just gross, isn't it? I can't imagine what it was like to raise him. And for Mary, watching her son grow and knowing... Knowing that he was going to go to the cross. Cannot imagine the heartbreak that was in that woman's life. Okay, born under the law. Why under the law? Someone, he alone, came to fulfill the law. He did it so he could redeem us. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 this morning says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions. Then verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what happened when he fulfilled the law and went to the cross. All of our sins, all of those things we did wrong, all of those things in our life that were contrary to God, He took them. And not only did He take them, He nailed them to the cross. And in nailing them to the cross, they were judged and dismissed. And all of those charges against you were gone. Every sin you ever committed was future the day Christ went to the cross. Okay, Because you were several thousand years behind Him going to the cross. So everything you did was future. Don't let that rattle around too much in your head. Okay, But that's what Christmas is. And that he says, so that we may receive the adoption as sons. Adoption to me, in my own very shallow opinion, is the single greatest act that truly reflects the love of God. To take someone, a child, and give that kid all all the privileges, to feed them, to care for them, to love them, to lose sleep with them, and to watch them go through all that life has, to bring all that baggage into your home. and all that, I don't care if it's just a baby. Babies have baggage. You, you don't know. You don't know what that kid's going to become. And to take that child and to bring it into your home and bring it in and then give it your last name or to bring it in and, and make it your own and raise it as your own child and to love that child and nurture it and to to cry over it, and to lavish love upon it. And sometimes the child runs away from you. There's no greater picture of God's love than adoption. Because that is what God did to us. When we became children of God, we're no longer on the outside. God adopted us in. With all the rights and all the privileges, of a natural born son. I don't know about you, but I like the idea of thinking that my adoptive father owns everything. That makes me the richest kid on the block. And I ain't talking about money. My God owns all that there is. There's nothing else in the world to me that is near and is dear As the adoption, but the birth of Christ came with a great cost, and this is where the Christmas story normally leaves off. Matthew two sixteen tells us that Herod sent out to have all of the children two years age, boy children two years of age and younger, Hebrew boys killed. You don't see that in the Christmas carols, do you? You don't see it on Christmas cards. It's not on any of the posters about feeling good about Christmas. I want you to imagine being the mother or a father of a boy two years old or younger. And you're living in Bethlehem. And the Roman soldiers come to town. And they go around and they're killing the children. Probably not taking them out back. Probably right in the front of mom and dad. Pardon me. Slaying children, right and left. Because a power-hungry, sinful man desired to maintain control. But that's part of the Christmas story. That's part of what happened when Christ came to earth. It doesn't take away from the beauty of Christmas, but rather yet it brings to you the severity and the sincerity that God put this world through, I, I suppose, to, to get us ready, the fullness of time. His, does it seem fair that these parents would lose their children? No, it doesn't. But at the same time, God gave his son. His son's going to go to the cross. His son's going to hang on a tree that he grew. His son is going to face the, the embarrassment and the beatings from the people that he came to save. He's going to be rejected of his own. So it's not like God doesn't understand what's happening. He knows the heart. He knows the, the hurt. He knows what's going on. But it is a very real picture of what happened at Christmas. The coming of Christ was not all, if you will, beauty, was not all warm and fuzzy. You can imagine the pain and the hurt was palpable. You could probably feel it. You could feel it in your heart as you walked through the streets. You know, God did this one other time or allowed it to happen one other time in the the book of Exodus with, with Moses. The birth of Jesus isn't just good news. It's great news. It is something so unique and so wonderful. It is something that we should never forget that comes with tremendous cost, with tremendous joy, but it also comes with tremendous pain. I want you to think about the Pharisees for a minute. How many of you have read through the Gospel of John? Have you ever noticed how many times he uses the term, I am? And every time he does it, you can just kind of kind of sense him with, a, with two fingers, just taking it and jabbing it right in the ribs of the Pharisees, because that was the words that they used for God, because God's name is I am. And he'd say, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, I am, I am. So for the Pharisees and the scribes, their kingdom is falling apart. They see it coming apart. Jesus is going to dissect their world. He's going to cut it in half, and they're not happy about it. Why else would they continually try to blame him for being, uh, if you will, a a blasphemer? They see it crumbling. Jesus came not to bring peace between man and man, but rather separate believers and non-believers. How many of you have lost friends and family members over your faith? I have. I've lost, uh, I've had men that I worked with that after I come to know Christ, they'd say, I don't even know you anymore. You've changed so much, I just don't know you. And at first, it's a little discouraging. And then you realize that that's exactly how God intended this to be. You're not supposed to be the same that you were. You're supposed to be, now that you are a new believer, you're supposed to be something completely different. And it's going to rub them the wrong way. And I'm really good at that. I've been rubbing people the wrong way my entire life. Jesus didn't come to bring peace for man. He came to bring peace between God and man. There will never be peace on earth outside God coming back. We talked about this in ABF this morning. You can never, ever, ever have true peace on earth. You put a a Cleveland Browns fan and a Steelers fan in the same room for three hours, there's eventually going to be an argument. Okay, and that's over a football team. Man will never find peace on earth until Christ comes and changes everything. But please don't think I'm a Christmas hater. I'm not. I'm really not. I just, I see Christmas differently. This is the stuff I see at Christmas. These are the things that I think are important at Christmas. That God prepared the world for the coming of His Son. He came, and He was born of a virgin, and He was in the manger, and He lived a sinless life, and He went to the cross for me. And I've watched in Scripture as He has delivered the blind. He's He's resurrected the dead. He's healed the sick. These are the things that I rejoice in. This is my kind of Christmas. When I think about the, the, the lame man at the pool of Siloam, and he says, rise up and walk, and the guy who hadn't walked in, in 35 years all of a sudden stands up and walks. Well, now that's Christmas, if you want to know the truth. The man born blind, that he heals him. And he goes to the Pharisees, and they're like, well, no, you, know, you can't. That can't be you. And so he calls the guy's parents in. And they grill the parents and says, was this really your kid? Well, yeah, well, how did he get his sight back? I don't know, asking. That's the kind of stuff I rejoice in. Because that's the kind of stuff that Christmas made possible. The coming of Christ made those things available. How about Jairus's daughter? The kid dies and Jesus goes in and resurrects the kid. Okay, raises the daughter back up. I mean, talk about partying in the streets. That's what Christmas brought to this world. It brought the Redeemer. It brought the Messiah. It brought the one that cares about you, loves you, hates sin, wants what's best for you, is going to raise you up in the final day. He's going to spend eternity with you. He's prepared a place for you in heaven. He has imparted his Holy Spirit into you. That's what Christmas is about. But you don't see that on any Christmas cards because it won't all fit on there. Pastor Dan would be mad at me. But you guys might love me because we're going to finish early. Because I don't believe in dragging things out. I want to challenge you this morning from all that is within my heart and all that I know to be true. I want you to rejoice in Emmanuel, God in the flesh. I want you to rejoice in Isaiah 7 and Luke 2. Come to find out in all of TV land, Linus had it right in Peanuts. You know, Charles Schultz demanded that they put that in the Christmas special. They wanted it out. And he said, either it stays or there's no Christmas special. My favorite Christmas special right there. I want you to rejoice in the coming of Christ. I want you to rejoice in the fact that he did bring to this world a sense of peace between God and man. I want you to rejoice in the fact that he did lower himself and become a man and go to the cross for us. I want you to rejoice in those things. I don't want you to get lost, don't let it get lost in all of the hubbub around presents and travels and chocolate covered Brussels sprouts and all those wonderful delectable treats that are out there this year don't get caught up in all of that. Don't let, don't let the world steal the joy of Christmas, which is the birth of Christ, the one who came that brought all these things into fruition into our lives. Let's face it, if it wasn't for Christmas, none of us would be here. I don't have much in common with any of you folks. I mean, a couple of you in here are good, decent Cincinnati Bengals fans. Okay. The rest of you I'm not so sure about. But for the most part, we don't, we're, not, we're not the same. We're different. But because of Christmas and because of the death on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our acceptance of Him as Lord and Savior, we can be together in the church and it's all because of Christmas. Because if there was no birth, there was no death. If there's no death, there's no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. And I'm telling you, I got some hope. I'm looking forward to that day when God calls me home and I get the perfected body that looks just like this one. So my friends, and we are going to finish a bit early, but that's okay. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that I wish that each one of you would have truly a Christ-centered Christmas. That you would not forget that in the evenings, that when you sit around with your loved ones as much as you can, that you not forget that it is the love of Christ that compels us to do these things. Don't lose, don't lose faith. Don't become discouraged. Don't let don't let the price of a, of a Barbie dollar or whatever get you down. Rather yet, rejoice. Rejoice that Christ came for us and made us available to become the children of God. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done in our lives, for what you are going to continue to do in our lives, for that which you have given us and for that which you have withheld. We've certainly not deserved many of the things and the blessings you've given us, but rather yet we deserve judgment and condemnation. And because of your love, you've held that back. Lord, I pray for every person in this room today that they would see Christmas in a whole different light. That they would not forget that Christmas is not just about gifts and Christmas trees, but it's about the coming of your Son and how you prepared the world and then you prepared our hearts for him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done in Christ's name.